Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. everyone, and welcome to the Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Journal of Asian American Studies. I am your host, Chris Patterson, and today we are devoting our second episode to understanding the histories and forms of Asian migrant sex work that have become commonplace in many North American cities and the risks, vulnerabilities, and livelihoods of the people who do this work. On March 16, 2021, Robert Aaron Long, targeted three Atlanta-area spas and massage parlors and killed eight people. Delania Ashley Yuen Gonzalez, Xiao Jia Tan, Dao Yo Feng, Paul Andre Michaels, Hyun Chung Grant, Sun Chung Park, Sun Cha Kim, and Yong A. Yu. Six of these victims were Asian women. Within the past week, many groups representing women, Asian Americans, sex workers, and migrants have collectively mourned and sent strength and solidarity to the eight victims and their families. This podcast episode will seek to express solidarity with these groups by highlighting the work of scholars and organizers who have been studying the racially encoded figures and the broader histories of Asian migrant sex work. We hope to give space here to understand how the violence that occurred on March 16th was imbricated within a racial capitalist structure that views Asian and Asian American women as disposable objects, a view that has been historically continuous with the histories of Chinese exclusion, initiated by fears of Chinese sex workers and yellow peril, and with over 150 years of U.S. imperialism in Asia, from the colonial theft of Hawaii and the Philippine-American War, to Japanese incarceration, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the growth of over 800 military bases across the world. As we will see in the interviews today, scholars have asked that we join groups, local and international, that stand for the decriminalization of migration and sex work, and to reject calls for hate crime laws or anti-sex trafficking laws, or any legislation that would bring more policing, which would only make migrants and sex workers more vulnerable and stigmatized. The scholars I interview here discuss and stress the importance now of building coalitions and joining organizations rooted in marginalized and precarious communities. As scholars, we see the importance of comparing and understanding shared oppressive structures and joining movements that are led not by us, but by the most vulnerable and those with the greatest stakes in making change. A brief content warning. The following will involve discussions of sexual assault and mental health. Please be advised and take care. I'm here with two members of the organization Swan Vancouver Society, which is one of only two organizations in Canada that provides culturally specialized supports and advocacy to immigrant and migrant women engaged in indoor sex work. Since their founding in 2007, Swan's mission has been to support the diverse voices and ongoing resilience of these communities of women and to help change the social and political narratives that racialize, misdefine, exclude, and otherwise harm them. My guests are Allison Chansey, the Executive Director of SWAN, 
and Kelly Go, SWAN's Outreach Coordinator. So could you begin by um, telling us a bit about what SWAN is and the kind of support and advocacy that you offer? Yeah, so SWAN supports migrant and immigrant women who do indoor sex work through providing direct services and systemic advocacy. Uh, we support over 500 women annually, uh, and we provide uh, direct services such as outreach to massage uh, businesses, delivering supplies. Um, in 2020, we delivered over 500,000 um, condoms, and we also connect with women in their workplace to answer questions and uh, provide resources in regards to health, social, labor, legal, and um, immigration, and also policing issues that they have. We also have a net-rich program, so basically online outreach through text message, um, different social media apps, and other technology that um, the uh, migrant women with precarious status working in apartments uh, might want to use uh, because uh, those uh, um, social media apps can, uh, because those media, those apps allow women to have a greater degree of privacy. Um, when the pandemic started, unlike many other community services, uh, we were, because of the NetRich program, we were also able to continue to promote, uh, to provide remote services to the women. We also have uh, that date reporting system called the Abuser Alert. So uh, women will report violence to SWAN and then we'll send out text messages to the women in our network. Um, uh, because uh, the woman that we serve cannot call the police or have any uh, legal protection. And um, on a systemic level, uh, SWAN is active challenging mainstream anti-trafficking discourses that encourage law enforcement actions that harm uh, migrant and immigrant sex workers. We're also really um, active advocating for the full decriminalization of the sex industry. And that's decriminalization that does not leave migrant sex workers behind. Uh, what people may not know is that if sex work was, was decriminalized in Canada, uh, migrant sex workers would still be criminalized under the uh, immigration prohibition. Wow, so you've been doing this work for um, well over a decade now. Um, what were your reactions um, to the shootings in Atlanta that happened last week? How did it resonate for you having done this work um, for quite a while and for the communities that you support who have been um, vulnerable to the kind of anti-Asian racist violence that, um, that you've been uh, made focus, that you've focused on for your work? Um, so first our condolences go out to the families and the loved ones of the women who lost their lives. At Swan, uh, we were horrified and deeply heartbroken to hear what had happened. And then we were angry. Uh, that it took not one but multiple murders to bring the issue of violence against women who work in massage parlors to the public consciousness. Yes, we were shocked and saddened by the murder. Um, it was an extreme act of violence on the continuum of violence against women that we hear each and every day. The week of the Atlantic murders, I actually got a call from a woman voicing the concerns about safety and the fact that 
um, women who work in massage parlor cannot call the police when bad things happen. Uh, because when a migrant or an immigrant sex workers report violence, there is only ever two, one of two outcomes. Either she becomes the target of a prostitution or a trafficking investigation herself, or she's arrested, detained, and deported for an immigration violation. And in that call specifically, the woman also emphasized that this is an urgent matter that needs to be resolved now, um, even in Canada, because when women cannot call the police and, when, and also when perpetrators know about the systemic vulnerability, violence happens. There is a kind of social acknowledgement um, that of these vulnerabilities and almost like a, the, the people then take advantage of them um, or they're sustained in various ways. Uh, and as Allison was saying, it might not even be an issue with like just changing the laws because then immigration laws will come in and reinforce some of these stigmas as well. Um, but but what we're seeing as well is the, um, the media seems to also be not kind of unaware of how this is the, the deeper structural issues that we've been discussing. Um, and it seems like there's still arguments over like whether this had anything to do with race um, or even with gender or poverty, or if it was just, you know, a white guy having a really bad day. And so there's a lot of toxicity in the media. And um, how do you see like Swan or, or the work that you do um, as responding to some of that? Um, how do you uh, feel about the way that this, has been represented. Yeah, um, we see discussions about Asian women as trafficking victims on social media, and then we also see people online urging others to learn about sex trafficking to understand the um, Atlanta shooting. And at the same time, we also see how um, anti-sex work or abolitionist groups are co-opting this murders to their agenda. And they're doing this with the platform that was given to them by the media. And these narratives continue to reinforce the assumption and stereotypes that construct Asian sex workers as snapshots without a voice, uh, without dimensions, without uh, control of the perspective, of, um, perspective and that their need to be saved. And for example, uh, they would use the term prostituted woman and this is the stereotypes that increase violence against sex workers and render them uh, disposable and deportable by the state in the first place. And in this case, these casserole feminists uh, who call for the end of prostitution regularly call for police in Canada to enforce Canada's prostitution laws. And this is the last thing that we need right now, given how... Um, systemic racism is in, in policing, and also how increased policing in the lives of racialized women who do sex work is really, um, it's really a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And just to build on um, what Kelly was saying, um, I've seen few articles that have provided um, informed or even deep critical analysis on what has happened. Uh, I saw some lazy journalism and major mainstream media not doing their jobs. I saw, uh, as Kelly pointed out, anti-sex work advocates being interviewed. And how is this still a thing in 2021? It's confounding to us. If there was a mass shooting of LGBTQ folks, um, the media 
well, I hope, would not go to an anti-LGBTQ organization to give them a platform uh, to disseminate their anti-LGBTQ hatred and their calls to eliminate homosexuality. Similarly, um, if there was a mass murder of another group of racialized folks, apart from the women who were murdered in Atlanta, they wouldn't go to an overt racist organization that calls for the elimination uh, of immigration and stop newcomers from coming to Canada to uh, respond to um, a mass murder. So giving voice to these harmful uh, perspectives is a very slippery slope um, that adds to the hatred, stigma, and violence of the women we serve. So let's talk about that context um, that um, that often gets mentioned now in terms of these um, of what happened, which is that you know this is coming post-Trump. Um, this is during coming after. Uh, and in the midst of COVID-19. And so I guess the the um, prevailing ideas is that this is all somewhat new. <laughs> and, and as we've been saying, you've been working on this kind of, on this stigmatization of um, this industry for a, over a decade now. I mean, is is it somewhat new or what, what has changed or what has been the same? Yeah, no, uh, what we've seen here, and it, which is really a combination of misogyny, anti-migrant and anti-sex work stigma, so while it, it has been exacerbated in the American political discourse in recent years, it's not new. The misogyny, anti-migrant, and anti-sex work stigma. So while it was ex- exacerbated in American political discourse in recent years, it's not new. And Canada is certainly not um, immune to it. Um, the women that uh, we support, um, they have been experiencing this kind of violence. Uh, for many, many years, and it occurly, it regularly occurs in massage businesses and was occurring uh, before the most recent rise in anti-Asian COVID-related uh, racism. I'm here with Dr. Lily Wong, who is an associate professor in the Departments of Literature and Critical Race, Gender and Cultural Studies, as well as a faculty affiliate in the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. She is one of the founding board members of the Society of Sinophone Studies. Her first book, Trans-Pacific Attachments, Sex Work, Media Networks, and Effective Histories of Chineseness, was published in 2018 by Columbia University Press. In our interview, we discussed the transnational history of Chinese sex work and how this history of the Asian sex worker has led to this moment. My name is Lily Wong. My work focuses on the politics of affective labor and racial capitalism, uh, minor transnational solidarity movements, as well as media formations of trans-Pacific Chinese, Sinophone, and Asian American communities. My first book, Trans-Pacific Attachments, analyzes transnational representations of Asian sex work Uh, particularly the so-called Chinese sex worker in literature and media circulated between the U.S., China, and Sinophone regions, such as Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. I argue that the figure of the Asian sex worker has long operated as a trope for both Asian American sexuality and Asian modernity, and so in a way the figure constitutes a pivotal reflection on the intersectional politics of not only racial, sexual, and class structures, but also between Asia and the Americas. So you, your work focuses on this figure, as you call it, of the Chinese sex worker, um, but you are also very um, uh, determined in your book to show how this figure does impact reality. And so what were your 
reactions to the kind of hard reality that we faced last week um, to the shootings in Atlanta? How did it resonate for you and the histories that you explore and the subjects that you seek to understand? Right. Uh, so many resonances. Um, so for one, uh, the tragedy in Atlanta really shows the, the material effects of ongoing discourse around sex work, uh, labor, and raci Asian racialization, not only within the long history of the U.S., but, but also internationally, right? Sexualized and racialized violence against working class Asian, Asian American, and migrant subjects in North America has been centuries in the making. Um, it is at the core of the way immigration acts have been crafted in the U.S., such as the 1875 Page Act, the very first federal immigration law passed in the U.S. It's also at the, the foundation of the ways labor has been unevenly organized and exploited from folks who were and still are construed as less than human, mere human capital. So it justifies um, U.S. domestic race and class-based exclusion while also legitimizing the ongoing expansion and militarization of U.S. empire in and beyond Asia and the Pacific for centuries. Now, another connection that I've, I've been trying to grapple with um, is also how discourses around China and Chineseness gets mobilized at this moment in North America, as well as in Sinophone communities. Um, here I'm, for instance, thinking about how a lot of the recent anti-Asian violence is understood in relation to rhetoric, such as uh, China virus and Kung Fu, but also how a lot of Red Scare language is mobilized around foreign policy that has really capitalized not only on the xenophobia in the U.S., but also the Cold War traumas of so many Asian and Asian American communities. Um, Viet Nguyen and Janelle Wong's piece in the Washington Post, of course, addresses this from the perspective of political rhetoric by U.S. lawmakers. What I'm also trying to make sense of is how we can critique such hawkish anti-Chinese rhetoric while not obscuring the very real, the very material forms of violence and threat to safety and sovereignty we see in places like Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, for instance. And so these are really tricky entanglements that I'm trying to think through. I really worry about Asians and Asian Americans being pit against each other across generations and across geohistorical positionings, dependent on their uneven proximity to the violence of both U.S. and Chinese empires. So speaking of the, these um, entanglements, um, you do focus in your book on this figure of the Asian sex worker, um, not only in the U.S., but also in you know, other Sinophone communities in mainland China, in Taiwan, for example. Um, to trace this longer transnational, transpacific history. Um, can you talk a bit about that history and this figure of the Asian sex worker and how that has led to this moment? Absolutely. So, so the book starts with the very first federal immigration law passed in the United States, the 1875 Page Act. The Page Act read Chinese working class female immigrants as all sex workers unless proven otherwise, thereby barring working-class Chinese female immigrants from entry into U.S. borders under the name of anti-trafficking. Now, it's important to understand this Immigration Act as not simply reflecting xenophobic stereotypes of the time. It had long-lasting material effects on the U.S.'s national body politic. The law rationalized the barring of generations of Chinese female immigration, which created a gender imbalance and 
at a time when only heterosexual marriage was legal and um, Asians, most Asians were considered aliens ineligible for citizenship. The law essentially prevented not only the inclusion of Chinese working class nuclear families into the U.S., but by extension blocked the birthright citizenship of generations in the working class for over half a century. So the legalized policing of Asian migrant bodies worked to justify anti-Chinese exclusion laws yellow peril discourse, and the civilizing rescue narratives of imperial expansion at the turn of the 20th century. So in other words, the very first federal immigration law passed in the U.S. did double work. It justified domestic race and class-based exclusion in the U.S. and legitimized or gave moral logic to the U.S.'s imperial expansion and militarization abroad, specifically in Asia and the Pacific, well into the Cold War. Now, if we look at the expansion of the U.S. empire during the Cold War in particular, we see the long history of sexual violence, not only during military conquest, but also through ongoing military presence on bases, rest and recreation stations, and camp towns throughout Asia and the Pacific, and, but also how this sexual economy and infrastructure leads back into the U.S. as well. So, Christine Young, Terry Park, and Kathleen Richards' piece in The Nation last week also addresses this history um, and this connection very clearly. Um, and media interviews with folks like Connie Wun from AAPI Lead and Yves Nguyen from Red Canary Song have also really um, contextualized the events in Atlanta with these larger histories of immigration, militarization, and empire. It really shows how we need to make sense of what's happened through intersectional and, and structural understandings of how we got here. I'm sure that um, as someone who works on these topics, I wasn't alone in like trying very hard to ignore most of the, um, I guess you could call the mainstream media or whatever, the just all the media basically um, about what was happening because there seemed to be like so much... Um, bad takes or bad readings and misinformation. Um, did you, how was your reaction to the media response and um, what did you feel like uh, you wanted to say back to it? Yeah, the media coverage for the first few days were just so reductive. Um, uh, there, there has been so much work done by activists, organizers, teachers, scholars, public intellectuals, so on and so forth that have tackled this long history of sexualized racialization, of Asian sex work and care work, as well as its convergence with empire and state-sanctioned violence, including policing. But the early media coverage felt like it had no language to, to grapple with this issue in, in a structural way. Uh, that was so frustrating. Um, it felt like all the work folks have been laboring for on the ground, in the classrooms, on the written page, have, have all just been screaming into the abyss. Um, and during a pandemic, a time when massage workers and sex workers and caretakers are asked to risk their lives to labor, the dehumanization and erasure of those murdered in contrast to the shooter really felt um, unconscionable. Well, speaking of the activity in the classroom, um, I have met with a lot of Asian American studies, Asian Canadian studies, folks who are really uncertain about you know, what their I think they're partially uncertain about if it's their responsibility to bring it up in class or to, you know, try and think about it in terms of some of the frameworks that they've established, but also recognizing that perhaps some of the um, frameworks that they've established, you know, about 
being Asian Canadian or Asian American doesn't actually explain really all that well what happened. Um, and so I'm also, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was to um, give people kind of give educators some um, knowledge about how they might be able to attend to these issues in their classes. What might you um, advise them based on your own um, knowledge and, and research? Yeah, um, I remember the first thing I did after I heard about the shooting uh, was to reach out to my Asian and Asian American identifying students um, and help space for processing and healing together. It was a way to make sure that we were taking care of each other and uh, centering the well-being of each other before the bombardment of news and analysis and university statements around anti-Asian hate, which often, as you know, misrecognizes or reduces our beings. And so I see this idea of taking care of each other as another way of working through perhaps uh, the need for relational organizing in and beyond the classroom. So Professor Hei Young Chu at uh, University of Toronto uh, detailed seven practical things that we can do as educators at this moment. Uh, I encourage everyone to read her suggestions. Uh, it's currently circulating on social media. And in addition to points on curriculum and pedagogy, um, Dr. Chu highlights, and I think this is crucial, the need for institutions to have a sustained intellectual space for students and faculty to do the critical and structural work needed, an intellectual space that is appropriately resourced and with faculty lines. Um, I know Darth Smith, for, for instance, is currently petitioning for Asian American Studies. We are also still struggling for this here at AU. Uh, such institutional changes might also help share some of the burdens of education and advocacy from folks organizing on the front lines and on the grounds and through their intimate lives within or without academia. One thing that your work does so well um, is to not only show how this figure of the Asian sex worker gets produced through you know, histories and practices of colonialism and empire, um, within the Trans-Pacific, but you also show the um, different forms of transnational organizing, sex work organizing, um, particularly in Taiwan. Um, is there something that um, that we're also missing, I guess, in, because I haven't seen like much um, mention of other like sex work organizations outside the U.S. Um, that are not um, as transnational or is not as well known, um, but how did you, um, how do you see that history um, being able to speak to this moment? Yeah, um, thank you for asking that question. Um, I, I think one of the main things I do want to highlight, and, and of course I can't speak for and over folks organizing the ground here and or in other places in the world, um, but I do want to emphasize uh, that folks have been organizing for a very long time. Um, sex workers have been uh, kind of uh, pushing for their own empowerment and uh, resources uh, for for a very long time. Um, so to be kind of wary not to position folks, especially when we talk about militarization and U.S. empire abroad, as reducing folks yet to just objects of victimhood. Um, and I say this because um, I want us to kind of be careful to reject narratives of criminalization and or rescue. Um, it risks mobilizing liberal rights discourses that often obscures or even erases the lived knowledge and local demands of sex workers themselves. It also risks falling into carceral responses. Um, here I'm thinking about what um, Tamara Knopper warned us against in her talk on Afro-Asian solidarity hosted by Asian American Writers Workshop last week. 
Um, further, narratives of criminalization and or rescue in terms of sex work really simplifies the question about complicity and coalitional building that we really need to think through not only within North America, but also transnationally, because this is a transnational question and problem. So what are the next steps that we need to take? And I guess that we could be, you know, us doing this research, but we also could be the big we, you know, the, the social steps that are necessary in order to um, understand and be able to deal with these histories and present-day violence? Yeah, wow, I, I wish I had a clear answer, <laughs> but um, I guess for now, I join in the calls by many others uh, who are sounding a call that we need to understand the murders in Atlanta, not as an individualized exceptional case of violence, but as a tragedy that is symptomatic of the histories and the material operations of power that we have inherited and, and must reckon with and restructure together. Here I'm thinking about the statement issued by the American Studies Association this past week that, that calls on us to, to engage with Asian and Asian American feminists, abolitionists, sex work justice, and queer-centered work against white supremacy and state violence. Um, that is also in dialogue, for instance, with Black, Indigenous, anti-colonial, and, and decolonial disability justice, and other communities of scholars, teachers, and practitioners. The only thing I would add to this um, would be to also think beyond the structuring forces of U.S. empire. This anti-Asian violence is occurring amid a global pandemic, which uneven effects have exposed and exacerbated overlapping structures of empire and inequity across the world. In addition to worldwide spread of xenophobic and anti-immigrant rhetoric, the sense of crisis has also worked to legitimize authoritarian repression and state-led militarization. And so this moment really calls for us to reckon with these overlapping structures and, and the urgency of solidarity building to, to turn to each other to restructure these paradigms. Lily, thank you so much for, for joining us and do take care during this difficult time. Thank you, Chris. Shootings in Atlanta on March 16th occurred on the 53rd anniversary of the My Lai Massacre, when, in 1968, a coalition of soldiers representing U.S. interests murdered as many as 500 unarmed people in Vietnam. On March 15th, 2021, the day before the Atlanta shootings, the U.S. forcibly deported 33 Vietnamese Americans to Vietnam, many of whom were refugees from the war or the children of refugees who had never been to Vietnam. Likewise, the mere use of statistics and race-based data to show the growth of anti-Asian violence in the U.S. continues to erase histories like this, the histories of imperial violence and colonial settlement that have conditioned such violence today. Massage parlors and spas in the U.S. themselves carry the history of war. As the scholar Yuri Dulin has written, the first Korean massage parlor workers most likely arrived in the U.S. in the 1950s, during and immediately following the Korean-American War, when many Korean women came to the U.S. as war brides, quote-unquote. 
1986, the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service had established a task force specifically to tackle Korean sex work. And at the time, authorities estimated that around 90% of salon and spa massage and sex workers in the U.S. had come to the country as GI brides. I met with the scholar Yuri Dulin, who is an assistant professor of history and studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Brandeis University, to learn more about this transnational military history. So your current book project, which I believe is forthcoming, um, is titled The First Amerasians, Mixed Race Koreans from Camp Towns to America, and tells the stories of the, um, you know, quote-unquote Amerasian mixed-race children from Korean mothers and American GIs. You bring this in your articles, I'm not sure about in the book, but to the transnational history of Korean sex work. And can you talk a bit about how you came to that research topic and how that, that research has gone for you? Yeah, um, so I became a historian in thinking critically about the historical processes around my own birth. So my mother and father met in a camp town during my father's military tour of South Korea in the 1980s. Um, but growing up, I had very little information about how it was uh, my parents came to know one another, or better yet, how my mother came to be in the company of U.S. soldiers, both because my parents divorced when I was three years old, and so my father wasn't around to answer those questions, um, but also because my mother was very secretive about her past and didn't like talking about that time in her life. Um, in fact, she would often get angry um, when I would ask about it. So then... Sometime during my undergraduate studies, I accidentally stumbled into an Asian American history class, as many of us do, um, and I realized that history or historical inquiry could be a way that I fill in the gaps and blank spaces in my family's history and my mother's narrative in particular, while also respecting her right to privacy. Um, so that's really how I became so interested in U.S. militarism in Asia and issues of race, gender, and sexuality as they relate to that history. And what were your reactions to the shootings in Atlanta um, a week and a half ago, considering that, you know, not only do you study and research this history, but you're also positioned in it? My first reaction, um, I think, was a feeling of intense sadness and empathy for the victims and their families. Uh, as you know, six of the eight victims were Asian-American, Many of the victims were immigrant women, mothers, single mothers. Um, they were working in the service industry and the massage industry, uh, probably not because it was their first choice, but because of their status as immigrant, working class, women of color with limited English language proficiency, limited resources, limited support from family or a broader co-ethnic community. Um, and that meant that, you know, this was one of the jobs that they could take to support themselves and their children. Um, so I, I thought a lot about my mom and how throughout her life in America, she's had to take on various kinds of jobs. Some jobs that were empowering to her, of course, but many, many more that were um, demeaning to her that, you know, she articulated in her own words as being so undesirable that only a woman like me um, would be so desperate to take. Um, 
And of course, she was talking about her status as a military bride or a divorcee, two things that marked her in a very particular way to Koreans and Americans alike as um, a stigmatized woman. And um, Ji Yun-ya, a historian and author of Beyond the Shadow of Camptown, calls this the Camptown shadow or the way that those women who intermarried with U.S. soldiers are often assumed by others who have been former military sex workers, whether this was the case or not. Um, And as it turns out, um, and I could tell even when the news first broke and we knew the identities of some of the victims, um, at least one, maybe two of them were former military brides and divorcees. So in, in the moments following me learning about the Atlanta shootings, I thought a lot about how easily this could have been my family's story, as uh, and that really weighed on me very heavily. Um, and then I think after acknowledging and mourning the lives of those eight people, um, and also the lives of the families who will forever be changed by this horrific event, my second reaction was probably very similar to other academics and scholars of Asian American studies, in the sense that when we experience or see oppression, and in particular this very violent form of racial violence that claims so many lives, we deal with that trauma by trying to understand or trying our best to understand um, where it comes from. And so uh, I was immediately reminded of some of the violent murders I've encountered and written about in my own research that highlight the vulnerabilities and vast power inequalities between Korean women and their oftentimes white American male clients in both South Korean camp towns, um, as well as U.S.-based massage businesses like those targeted in Atlanta. So I thought of incidents like the brutal murder of Yoon Kim Lee by U.S. military serviceman Kenneth Markle in Dongducheon, South Korea during the early 1990s, as well as the murder of Sun Oak Cousin, an attempted murder of Yoon Lee in a massage business near Fort Carson, um, Colorado in 1974 by a man named Park Estep who set both of the women on fire. Um, and, and there are countless more other stories like this um, that just did not make headline news at the time. Um, and so this crime in Atlanta felt so familiar, um, so similar to those incidents. It felt parallel. It felt inextricably linked not only to the history and contemporary reality of anti-Asian violence that we've been seeing, um, stemming back to the PAGE Act and the Chinese exclusion era, but also um, the history of anti-Asian gendered and sexualized violence that was reinforced and took on new character in the post-war era with um, U.S. militarism abroad. Well, let's dig a bit into that connection. Um, I've, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who um, might not see exactly how that works, right? How does those um, events had happened near in camp towns and, and near military bases, which you know, of course, happen all over the world. Um, as someone who also studies, you know, the Philippines and um, Japan, of course, these incidents are part of how people react and remember these these spaces, these militarized spaces, military bases. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if you could just expand a bit more on that. Um, and this comes particularly from one of your articles that's been um, quoted a bit, given the, the media coverage right now on, um, I think it's called Trans-Pacific Camp Towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, yeah, Trans-Pacific Camp Towns, um, which is a really fascinating article 
um, that I think really illuminates a lot of this history. And so can you tell us a bit about how the how we get to massage parlors in the U.S. Um, from this, uh, from the Korean War and from the Cold War? Yeah. Um, first, I want to start off by saying, um, you know, that there's no confirmation and perhaps there never will be of whether or not the victims identified themselves as sex workers or were in fact sex workers. Um, and this doesn't really matter with regards to whether or not this is or was a sex worker rights issue or an Asian American women's issue, because it is clear that these lies were taken because the perpetrator perceived the women employed in, in these Atlanta businesses as such. Um, so it's both. And this dual reality, first, that some working class Asian women employed at health spas and massage businesses might very well engage in sex work. And second, that many others do not, but the hypersexualization of race makes it so that they are perceived that way. Um, these two things are both related to legacies of U.S. militarism in Asia that I'm about to speak to. Um, so I just wanted to preface my response first by acknowledging that and making clear that I am not trying to conflate the victims or all Asian-owned massage or spa businesses as fronts for sex work, even though the history I'm about to speak to does, in fact, involve acknowledging the reality that some Asian and Korean-owned massage businesses are implicated in a broader history of transnational sex work stemming from U.S. military occupation in South Korea. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge this history to make full sense of what it was that happened in Atlanta, um, this particular form of anti-Asian, gendered, and sexualized violence as inextricably shaped by U.S. empire and its reverberations from abroad back home, so to say. Um, so the article I wrote that you referenced is in the Journal of American Ethnic History. It's entitled Trans-Pacific Camptowns, Korean Women, U.S. Army Bases, and Military Prostitution in America. And in that article, I argue that many illicit massage businesses owned by Korean Americans are, in fact, transnational outgrowths of military prostitution in South Korean camptowns abroad. Um, so for the listeners who are a bit unfamiliar with camp towns in South Korea, these are the recreational districts that cropped up around U.S. military encampments beginning in 1945 with the transfer of power from the Japanese Empire. Um, at that time, thousands of Koreans impoverished for, from decades of colonial rule flocked to U.S. bases looking to eke out a living from the U.S. military. Um, as such, an informal sex industry emerged. Um, but when rates of sexually transmitted diseases increased, the U.S. military played a direct role in setting up a system of surveillance and policing the camp towns so that the sexual health of Korean women working in close proximity to U.S. bases could be strictly monitored for the benefit and health of U.S. soldiers. Um, so this consolidated and highly regulated system of militarized sex work persisted during and after the Korean War as a way to reward soldiers for their, you know, their quote-unquote sacrifice and also improve troop morale. Um, additionally, the absolute devastation brought on by U.S. air raids during the war, the indiscriminate killing of civilians, um, it left one-tenth of the Korean population dead, thousands and thousands of separated families, children orphaned, um, and this post-war poverty continued for many, many, many decades thereafter. Um, so it is in those social conditions that 
many more Koreans continued to flock to U.S. bases to help support their families. Um, some women found work on base as secretaries, maids, translators, librarians, servers, coffee girls, etc. Um, and then others, you know, found work in the entertainment districts around the bases, the camp towns, as sex workers. Um, the lines between those women, however, were very much so blurred in the eyes of the U.S. military. Um, all were suspected of being potential um, venereal disease carriers and potential prostitutes. So the sexual health of Korean women working in close proximity to the U.S. military was carefully monitored, and even women with no relation to sex work were assumed to be prostitutes as well. Um, and as you mentioned, it's important to note that Korea is not alone with this culture of military sex work. Other U.S.-occupied parts of Asia, like Okinawa, the Philippines, Vietnam, and more, um, those places have also had camp towns and a similar system of military sex work that was encouraged and maintained by the U.S. military um, in collaboration with local governments. We have to also acknowledge that dimension as well. It, it was the U.S. military in collaboration um, with locals. Um, so these South Korean camp town communities, you know, they catered to GIs off-duty, often out of bars and brothels, and grew economically dependent on the U.S. dollar. Um, but in the 1970s, and in the context of slowly losing public support for its war in Vietnam, the U.S. military began rapidly withdrawing its troop presence in Asia via a policy called the Nixon Doctrine. Um, and then this reduction in troop population by tens and tens of thousands caused massive economic upheaval and social disorder for those Koreans in camp towns who had been depending on the U.S. dollar for survival for so many decades. So as the U.S. military disbanded and reorganized its units and troops were redeployed elsewhere, some camp towns became abandoned ghost towns. And, and the businesses there, once catering to U.S. servicemen, um, flocked to different areas that were not as effective by the massive troop withdrawals. Um, but those areas now were overrun with those looking to cater to U.S. servicemen. So it's in this context of, of troop reductions, economic dependency to the U.S. military, that many Camptown establishments began sending their madams and sex workers to the United States in search of new markets. Um, and they did so through brokered marriages with U.S. servicemen, later dubbed um, sham marriages by U.S. immigration and law enforcement officials. So in the 1970s, or beginning in the 1970s, um, we began to see that U.S. servicemen were being paid to marry Korean women for the express purpose of bringing them to the United States and then divorcing them upon the successful procurement of a visa or green card. Um, and these women, many of whom were much older than the GI husbands, signaling that they were, in fact, madams rather than sex workers themselves, um, would often open massage businesses catering to local troop populations stateside around domestic U.S. military installations. So places like Fort Campbell in Clarksville, Tennessee, Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas, Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia. Um, so these businesses began to resemble camp town establishments in Korea that provided sexual services to GIs in the sense that they remained economically dependent and subordinated to the U.S. military and their interests. So, for instance, massage businesses could be placed off limits to GIs by military officials, much like camp town bars in South Korea, 
if there was any suspicion that the women working there were spreading sexually transmitted diseases to U.S. servicemen. Um, so such an off-limits decree, we, we also need to understand, was financially financially devastating to the Korean-owned establishments. Um, so we can see then how this system of economic dependency to the U.S. military followed these camp towns establishments, um, even as they were transplanted onto U.S. soil in the form of uh, massage businesses. Um, to get past this, I believe, Korean-American owners of massage businesses began moving their establishment out of the southern military towns um, and instead to major cities, like, for instance, Atlanta. So there were, there were often two kinds of women who might work in these massage businesses. Some women who arrived in the U.S. through those brokered marriages to GIs that I mentioned earlier. Um, and this was for the explicit purpose of entering the Korean-American sex industry. And then others were perhaps divorced military brides. So women who were formerly married to U.S. servicemen. Um, and it's important to note here that two-thirds of the marriages between Korean military brides and U.S. soldiers are estimated to have ended in divorce with high rates of domestic abuse, mental health struggles, and maladjustment in the United States. Um, and now, without their American husbands, many were economically vulnerable um, as immigrant women of color with limited English language skills and opportunities for social or economic mobility. So they were a particularly vulnerable population and Korean recruiters in military towns often targeted them, sometimes deceptively. But the work also proved to be quite lucrative and so um, there were, of course, varying levels of agency, with some women entering the massage sex industry willingly, but also there were varying levels of coercion, as some women were certainly trafficked um, and trapped in a system of debt bondage, whereby they lived on property and their movements were always monitored. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge um, that this is you know, mostly an unknown chapter of Korean-American history, precisely because of its explicit connections to Camptown sex work abroad. And for, I suppose, um, you know, the quote-unquote shame it might cast on the Korean-American community. Um, for instance, when police raids and the popular investigative television series 2020 put the issue of Korean massage businesses um, in national headlines during the 1980s, this really contributed to Korean military brides' pariah status from mainstream Korean immigrant communities, or the Camptown Shadow that I mentioned earlier, which is, uh, again, the assumption that all women who intermarry U.S. soldiers are former or currently practicing prostitution, whether or not that is or was the case. Um, so my research article lays out that history, making clear how some massage businesses in the United States owned by Korean Americans have a direct relationship to U.S. militarism abroad and camp town prostitution in South Korea more specifically. Um, but, you know, while my work is about the 1970s and 1980s primarily, the Korean American sex industry has changed quite a bit since, um, now often with elderly Korean madams as the owners of these establishments employing non-Korean mostly Chinese-American women. Um, and this mimics actually the changing dynamics that we see in South Korean camptons as well, which no longer employ Korean women in their bars and brothels to cater to U.S. servicemen, but Filipino women and Eastern European women. Um, and these changes began um, to emerge in the 1990s when Korea began to 
um, become an economic power in East Asia, and the declining value of the U.S. dollar meant that it was much more difficult to recruit and exploit South Korean women's sexual labor. My conversations with Lily and Yuri revealed the histories and representations of Asian massage parlors as they are entangled with transpacific forms of colonialism, empire, and war. In my interview with Kelly and Allison of Swan Vancouver, we discussed the actions that Swan has taken to decriminalize and combat the taboos of Asian sex work and how academics, writers, and artists have helped to create change. So what... Um main events or actions has SWAN been a part of and how have they been important to the community and for creating awareness and eliminating the taboos and the um, dehumanization of representations of migrants and sex workers that your organization has been working uh, to combat? SWAN brings critical awareness and education to the dialogue. Migrant sex work is not trafficking. The intersection of gender, race, class, migration, and sex work is very complex, and unfortunately, the simplistic, ill-informed trafficking narrative misleads and often intentionally and perpetuates dehumanizing and moral racist stereotypes of Asian women in particular who do sex work. And um, Swan counter these uh, misrepresentations in 2018 was the Photo Voice Project, in which the women took pictures of other aspects of their lives, forefronting their other identities, interests, um, proving a multidimensional representation of who they are. And these firsthand representations humanize the woman and give them a platform to safely tell their own stories. And so hopefully in 2021, we will have an online version of this project so people can uh, learn something other than mainstream trafficking narratives. And there are, um, well, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because I know a lot of um, academics and educators are um, don't really know how to approach, you know, what's happened. And I think they've of course, had to like deal with different kinds of um, tragedies in the past. Um, but as someone who like researches um, Asian American studies and um, and sex work, it's also it feels like the first time ever <laughs> where, where these things like you like we were talking about feels like the first time ever these uh, issues have been like right in the media and you know on everyone's minds. Um, and so it feels like we're now confronted with, you know, what do we do as educators? Um, what are the things that you feel like could we, we could do well um, to help contribute to, you know, help support and advocate for um, migrant sex workers? Yeah. Um, I don't have all the answers, but I think being open to ask uncomfortable questions and to really connect to uh, the larger systemic racism to this issue is important. For example, like asking questions, where did the assumptions of Asian women in sex work that need saving comes from? 
why is there a reluctance to talk about um, anti-sex work sentiment in this particular context? Like, is this reluctance comes from a deeply rooted assumption that Asian women should uphold this label of being young, voiceless, passive, and innocent? And like, how do white colonial ideals of women come into play in this um, in this situation? And the other thing that I was thinking is, I feel like it would be really telling if someone's gonna, I don't know, do like a media analyst through like a critical race perspective to really understand how Asian sex workers are being talked about or not talked about and what what are the unspoken assumptions behind these reportings and what is being left out. Because I think right now it is really through the media that we all come to understand and know about these events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd add, um, I understand the discomfort uh, more specifically that um, some academics or educators may have uh, when it comes to talking about sex work-related issues, but it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, I think we need to stop focusing on the sex in sex work and address sex work from a human rights, uh, labor, legal, and health perspective. I speak for four hours about sex work, and I often do in community trainings, providing people with different language and different angles to examine um, this issue. So once people are able to understand uh, how morality and their own personal views about sex in general impede them from focusing on sex work uh, as a labor issue, for example, it becomes much easier uh, to have that conversation. So what are the next steps that um, should be taken from here on, um, how do you ensure, or how do we kind of work together um, within an activist organizing ecosystem um, to ensure that events like these don't happen again, or that there's better representation, better um, infrastructure in place to help us deal with um, these kind of events? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few things we can think of. Uh, firstly, of course, is to speak out against sex work stigma, misogyny, and racism. Uh, we all have a part to play in addressing uh, these harmful perspectives and actions over. And then secondly, this thing that we keep coming back to is learning the difference between sex work and human trafficking, and more importantly, the harms of anti-trafficking campaigns and enforcement on immigrant and migrant sex workers. So Swan has a five-minute illustrated video uh, on our website, and it's also pinned to our Facebook page, um, and also we have um, a full web page on um, anti-trafficking harming while trying to help. So if someone listening is concerned about women in the sex industry, we urge you to seek out a local sex work organization and not to support mainstream anti-trafficking campaigns because these only increase systemic vulnerability uh, to human trafficking and promote the involvement of police in the lives of uh, racialized women. So what is the um, future like looking like for SWAN currently? Yeah, we are very encouraged by the outgoing of support we have received since March 16, the day the women were murdered. Um, uh, we were heartened that in seven days, the media interest, general public interest and donations were more than we received in our 19-year history. We hope that the interest is not fleeting and people will continue to learn about uh, and support migrant and immigrant sex workers' rights. 
we hope to seize this moment to make progress on the systemic change and law reform that are needed to prevent such extreme acts of violence. We also hope to build more community and solidarity with individuals and groups across sectors that address migrant rights, immigration, women's issues, sex work, and racism. There is much community work needs to be done and solidarity to build. Uh, we hope people can examine any implicit sex work bias they may have and toss on into these conversations and be more inclusive of migrant and immigrant women who do sex work. I want to end by giving thanks to my guests today, Allison Chansey and Kelly Goh of Swan, Vancouver, Dr. Lily Wong at American University, and Dr. Yuri Doolin at Brandeis University. My hope is that this podcast can help contribute to the larger conversations that have emerged in the aftermath of the Atlanta shootings, and in that spirit, I hope to invite feedback and commentary from the listeners on this subject, and I hope to have a follow-up podcast that can offer more reflection and strength as we begin to process the killings in Atlanta. And of course, we send strength to everyone, particularly the families of the victims, as we continue to collectively mourn. Thank you for listening to the JAS Podcast, a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. It is produced by the Journal of Asian American Studies with the help of the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia. It is mixed by myself and Moses Caliboso, and the music featured in it is by the local Vancouver band Necking.